0: The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not
1: necessarily reflect the views of their employers. So I did it. I went out and I got myself the Apple Watch. No, did you really? I did. Show me, show me. Uh, well, I don't have it on me oh. because the thing won't arrive until, quote, June. We. Oh. Yeah, most models are four to six weeks delivery, and I was looking at a model that taxes and Apple Care included was going to be one thousand dollars. And the first thought that went through my head is, as good a product as Apple makes in version one, generation two is always better than generation one. So I am not going to drop a thousand dollars on one of these ridiculous things. And then later on, it occurred to me, you know, what's even better than Gen two of an Apple product is Gen two point five. Right. Gen 3. So I thought instead of dropping a grand on this watch, I'll drop $500 on the Apple Sport with the white band, because I thought that was very iPod-esque. Right. And Then, once they've perfected the thing in version 3, then I'll drop the big bucks.
2: Oh, okay. I thought we had both agreed that we were going to get the Sport Watch.
1: That's what I ended up getting. I was originally going to get the the middle-of-the-road one with the nice leather band and all this nonsense. And I did the number... I ran the numbers on it. And you can buy the Apple Sport Watch and buy the band, the high-end band, and that would be less than if you had bought the high-end watch. Right.
2: Okay. Well, this is what I'm going to do. Again, I haven't had an opportunity to... well, actually, I've spent so much money on airfare recently that I've I've kind of pushed back my my Apple
1: Watch purchase. But when I do, this is what I'm going to, I'm going to go with the sport one. So, but June? June. That's the delivery date. And that could be the end of June for all I know. I come home and I say, wifey, I've decided I am in fact, after all, getting the Apple Watch. And I got it half price. Only 500 bucks. She looked at me and she said, you're an idiot. (laughs) Here we go.
0: From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats Magazine, simulcast on Shortwave Radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting.
2: Highway to Hell? More like heaven. We'll tell you how the iconic devil horn salute by metal bands has its origins
1: in a Sicilian grandmother.
2: Master, we have a visitor.
1: It's just a jump to the left. And 40 years into the past, the Rocky Horror Picture Show gets a reboot. What a bad idea. It's just a series of tubes, and we're not talking about the Internet. We'll rewind the clock 40 years to the advent of in-flight music systems. Plus, 10 songs ruined by commercials, what Gary Glitter and Star Wars have in common, and how many YouTube views a musician needs to make minimum wage.
0: And now... Michael Hainsworth.
1: Cracked Magazine had this fabulous collection of the five unlikely origins of the iconic symbols you see every day. And the one that piqued my curiosity was the heavy metal devil horns.
2: Yeah, now, Ronnie James Dio is the guy that's credited... With introducing the devil horns into 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 music, period. This was the guy who took over from Ozzy Osbourne on Black Sabbath, right? Yeah, but but Dio had done all kinds of things. He was in Sabbath, he was in Rainbow, he was in he had his, a variety of other bands he was with Kerry Lifgren and a whole bunch of things. But uh, his grandmother, this is a really interesting story. His grandmother says uh, had this old Italian gesture. And this is something that's actually gone through uh, heavy metal lore for years and years and years. Uh, so the, the, the devil horns, which is your uh, index finger and your pinky, and you're, you fold down the other two fingers in the middle. For those who are new. For those who are new. That's the, you ward off the evil eye with that one. Well, take Dio's word for it, because that's where he
1: says he got it, from his Italian grandmother. From his little old Italian grandmother. At the end of a concert, he was basically saying, he was wishing the audience good luck. And they just assumed that there must be some satanic uh, overture to it, considering, you know, Ozzy Osbourne was biting heads off bats. And uh, everybody figured, hey, that that's a pretty cool screw the man kind of uh, symbol. And so that is how it ended up what it is today. Yeah, and and everybody misunderstands it.
2: Mind you, it's still very effective in warding off the evil eye, so uh, maybe you're using it for one purpose, but you're actually accomplishing something else. Are you ready
1: for the time warp? Oh.
2: It's just a jump to the left. Put your hands on your hips.
1: I read this while I was in Borneo. <laughs> wow, there's a humble brag for you. I know there. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I was in Borneo the other day. I, I read that there somebody has decided to remake the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I can't imagine a bigger mistake than to do that. Why would you reboot that? I mean, the original in its glorious, with all its glorious imperfections, is perfect.
1: Leave it alone. Why would you want to do that? Because you're hitting the 40th anniversary of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Doesn't matter. Fox is developing a two-hour remake of the 1975 cult hit that'll be uh, directed by the guy behind High School Musical. See... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Richard O'Brien, who wrote the original, does not need the money. I mean, this,
2: the original film is still running at midnight in some theater somewhere around the world right now. Maybe Tim Curry needs the cash. I don't know. He doesn't. Or more lipstick. No, he's fine. But uh, to agree to something like this, I mean, why don't you just remake
1: Casablanca? Frankly, I don't give a damn, but the thing is, is they made a lot of money on the movie over the course of the last 39 years, $112 million, and there are still people throwing toast at the screen. Yeah, and there's there's the stage productions
2: as well, um, and yeah, it's probably the longest continuously running movie in the history of motion pictures. Uh, it huge success. It's iconic in so many different ways. Everybody knows who Riff Raff and Doctor Frankenfurter are, and who Rocky was. Why, why would you, why why would you mess with this? I mean, it's like the Clash getting back together. Don't stay. Just don't do it. Who would you get to play
1: in Meatloaf?
2: My best story of 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 that from Rocky Horror is uh, the movie, and I was really excited. Because at that point I thought I was going to do Eddie and Doctor Scott the same as in the uh, in the play, and then I was still excited. They said, "Well, we're not we're going to have somebody else do Doctor Scott," and I said, "You're making a huge mistake." <laughs> and I and I and I and I still think they did, even though the actor was fine. I think they made a huge mistake because the the way it was in the play, Eddie and Doctor Scott really looked alike, and so you knew it was his nephew. And they, you know, and and and. Um, I was a very good Dr. Scott. Who would I get to play Meatloaf? Uh,
1: that, ooh. If I had to cast this? Mm-hmm. Patton Oswalt. <laughs> Can the boys sing? That's the question, I guess.
2: Well, I, I'm sure... D- listen, if we're, if we're talking about fantasy stuff, he's the guy I would get.
1: Okay, then who plays the Tim Curry role of Dr. Frank N. Furter? Uh,
2: somebody who has to have as much style as a transsexual. So... Come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticip Say it patient But maybe the rain is really to blame So I'll remove the cause
1: <laughs>
2: But not the symptom
1: would i get justin bieber no he couldn't pull it off how is that for a rehabilitation of your career no no he he, no way he
2: could he pull that off i would you know uh jared Leto. okay
1: Uh, tim curry can't do it i understand he actually had a stroke yeah tim's hasn't been well for a while although apparently he's he's done well enough to do voice work for star wars the clone wars after so no 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 he's, he's he's fine he's just not what he used to be i mean i don't know who old Tim is, but he's, he's certainly too
2: old for the part. But Jared Leto would do it. I mean, he did it in, what was that, uh, American Buyers Club, or Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, yeah, he could do it.
1: This isn't the first time they've tried to reboot the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Didn't they try to do it for the 30th anniversary as well? Uh, I don't remember. I do remember there was a
2: sequel that nobody remembers. There was? Yeah, there was. Uh, it was called, and nobody went to see it. I mean, nobody went to see Rocky Horror the, uh, the, the when it first came out. It
1: was a stiff. It's called Shock Treatment. That's right. 1981. Yeah, that's right. And it was a miserable failure of the plot, according to Wikipedia. So, you know, it must be true is the continuation of the characters of Brad and Janet Majors, uh, who are now married and it takes place in Denton, USA, where the town has been taken over by a fast food magnate. Uh, and uh, it is entirely encased within a television studio and residents are either stars and regulars on the show, cast or crew. Brad and Janet, while seated in the audience, are chosen to participate to participate in a game show called Marriage Maze, and hilarity ensues. Okay, here's an assignment for somebody. Go out and find this movie, watch, and give us a review. A uh, Shock Treatment is available for rent on DVD on Netflix. So if it's available on a uh, compact disc, I can imagine it's also available on the streaming. Well, in Canada, maybe not, but certainly in the U.S.
2: I mean, we only we have a, a crappy Netflix library on this side of the border.
1: I didn't realize how crappy the Canadian Netflix library was until I spent time over March break in Florida with the Fam Damley. And there were a whole bunch of TV shows from my youth, like uh, Knight Rider, A Team, uh, and a bunch of others that I thought, oh, this is great. And I added them to my list. And then when I got back home and I pulled them up, none of them were on the list. I'm just going to, I'm looking it up right now. I got the perfect solution to who would play Dr. Frankenfurter. Who? Marilyn Manson. Well, that is not a bad idea. Marilyn's used to wearing makeup.
2: He is. He has a certain amount of uh, sexual swagger.
1: And and he was recently beaten up, so you know that the man can take a punch.
2: One of the affiliates for my radio show, The Ongoing History of New Music, uh, is uh, 98.1 The Bridge in, in Lethbridge. And uh, they actually have audio of somebody talking about a friend
1: who was the guy that actually punched Manson. <laughs> <laughs> Audio of a guy who has a friend. Yeah. Who's babysitter's brother. Kind of. Is the mother of the woman who punched him. Listen, TMZ didn't get this close. Have a, have a listen to this.
2: Coming up.
0: One of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today.
1: Time now for a Geeks and Beats update.
0: London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati, from the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update.
1: We want to thank a, a whole collection of new patrons of The Big Show. Uh, we had given away a couple of weeks back that uh, Sonos Play One speaker, the limited edition Blue Note, uh, and we were raffling it off by using Patreon. So if you are, in fact, still a patron of The Big Show and you don't want to be, be sure to go and cancel your account. But Stéphane Dubord, Ian Long, Randy Redekop, Adam Day, and Bill French are uh, big shots who are contributing to the show this time around. Michael Haig, uh, who was the winner last week... By putting $100 worth of raffle tickets into the draw, has not put a lifetime limit on his donations. So there's a. I feel a bit gross about that. We should tell him. Did you contact him? We, we have contacted him. So we'll dig him for another 100 bucks. If he didn't intend it, we'll, of course, reimburse him. Uh, Devin Arn is uh, also a, a member of the World's Worst Intern Program. How you support the show is by becoming an intern of the big show. And the way that works is, like any intern, uh, you don't actually contribute to the show. And what makes it the World's Worst Intern Program, you pay us to not work on the show. A dollar an episode that gets uh, us uh, mentioning your name on the big show. Mm-hmm. How much money have we made recently? We should have an accounting sometime soon. We we have an accounting. The grand total so far since we started doing this in January is one thousand four hundred and seventy-three dollars. Okay, that's not bad. That'll pay for for our hosting and seventy-nine cents. Okay, and then we can take uh, the unpaid interns out and
2: uh, maybe give them um, you know uh, rail rail
1: shots. Yeah, exactly. We're going to get them all liquored up one night and they'll stumble home and forget any of this happened. Yeah, exactly. Okay. well,
2: nice. That's very good. Um, I I hope our our friend there realizes that he's giving us too much money.
1: Well, that's completely up to him. Having said that, uh, if you would like to support the show, but you need something in return, uh, you can uh, get a Miracle Travel mug of traveling. One GNB listener pointed out that we're screwing people with this. How? It's a 30 U.S. dollar... Um, travel mug, yeah. but if you flip it to Canadian dollars, it's $42. Well, how is that our fault? Well, it's not. It's Cafe Press, which uh, tax on 12 additional dollars, which is a 40% increase on a Canadian dollar that is not down 40% against the greenback. So we apologize in advance for ripping you off. This is kind of like the what, what
2: Chapters in Indigo faced with uh, book prices, hardcover book prices, when the dollar went up and down.
1: Exactly. The finance minister is going to rail against the Geeks and Beats
2: podcast. Exactly. Again, we're we're back to this cross-border shopping inequities when we're paying we're paying more than we should when the dollar is down, and we're paying more than we should when the dollar is is up.
1: So if you'd like to support the show but need something in return, you can pay uh, an outrageous amount of money for our Miracle Travel mug and go to Twitter. Take a picture of wherever you are with your mug and hashtag it GN, as in Norman, B, Mug Tour 2015, as Victor Biggio has done. He now owns two of them, by the way. Oh, He's got a before and after. The original one and then the model that was upgraded. Much like my Apple Watch, he bought version one. And then, of course, as soon as he bought version one, they upgraded it to version two, which is better because it had a handle. What? Oh. Mm -hmm. See, I didn't know this.
2: There you go. Okay. Well, I'm... I'm See, mine is just so indestructible that I, I don't I, I've
1: developed an affinity, I like a real affection for my, uh, my... An affection for it? Yes, I like it a lot. I, I Do you stroke it lovingly? Yeah. Do you sing it to sleep at night? Not uh, quite, but I certainly would be
2: lost without it.
1: You spent an awful lot of time on aircraft over the course of the last couple of weeks, um, and had this been 1980, you would have been using pneumatic tubes to listen to music.
2: Yeah, this is very true. I uh, The first time I took a an overseas flight was in 1976. It was aboard an Air Canada L-1011 and that was when they still had reels on a projector that would screen the movie on a screen at the front of the cabin and rather than having any kind of electronic headphones, what you had were these hollow tubes and you jammed them into these little air holes and they were generally they were genuinely air holes in your seat and you stuck these things in your ears and you listened to the audio of the movie as you would a stethoscope. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was, it wasn't it was until much later that we got the electronic headphones that, that we have today. But I, I remember that. That was a, a very uncomfortable way to listen to the movie, which you couldn't see because there was always people in front of you. And I can't remember if there was any sort of volume adjustment for that because it was kind of like listening to an old Victrola. Exactly. Yeah, you got exactly what was coming out of the horn and that was it.
1: Uh, 10watts.blogspot.ca, otherwise known as Arcane Radio Trivia, uh, points out that this first came into use on airplanes in 1951 and then was in wide use for transcontinental flights by 1963. Avid is the name of the company that did this, otherwise known as the company responsible for pretty much everything in the music business today. Including Pro Tools. Which is what we're using to edit this show. Isn't that interesting? What a fascinating piece of trivia. Thank you very much. Now, uh, you flew on eight different airlines since last Friday, and you have got a rating for the in-flight systems. I don't want all eight. I want the number one in-flight system. Well, I
2: would still have to go with Singapore Airlines, although ANA out of Japan is, is very, very good. I haven't flown Etihad or Emirates, which I've also been told are very good. But I have never been disappointed with the in-flight entertainment that I get from Singapore Airlines ever. And what makes it better than, say, Air Canada? Uh, Bigger screens, better sound, better headphones, uh, larger selection, uh, just generally better overall. You know, I, I flew on Air Canada over the last little while, so I had an opportunity to compare. Uh, systems to to what they have right now. It is, what they have now is old and tired. They really need an upgrade.
1: I was impressed when I went on a dirt cheap Air Canada Rouge flight that because they didn't have the seat back screens, if you had an iPad, uh, you would fire up the Wi-Fi, connect to the in-flight Wi-Fi, which didn't get you the internet, but it got you their uh, movie and, and music and, and TV show system. It's, oh, it's funny that uh, Air Canada Rouge was one of the, uh, oh, hang on,
2: put a pause here, hang on. Hang on just a second, somebody's calling me. Hello?
1: I wonder who's calling. Hello? Maybe it's his agent. Could be Marilyn Manson. Oh, God. Hmm. Troy. Was that a free Marriott hotel stay? As a matter of fact, it was. Yeah. WestJet was the target uh, of that uh, spam, that cell phone spam a while back, and and I complained to them, and they they confessed it had nothing to do with them. They got uh, managed to get it smacked down, and now the company's resurfaced uh, trying to get you uh, dirt cheap hotels through Marriott, and it's all a scam. Uh, What were we talking about? We were talking, oh, Air Canada Rouge. I actually flew Rouge down to Tampa
2: from Toronto, and i used their uh rouge player it was really quite good although the selection of movies and things that they have is 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 pretty limited
1: still no alan cross on the music streaming service
2: yes i know we're working on that
0: you're listening to geeks and beats on itunes stitcher and the bell media radio network
1: 10 songs ruined by commercials. Oh, I'm sure you can name more than 10. I'm sure you can, this is a good list. Let's just uh, have a look at them, shall we? Sir Mix-a-Lot's "Baby Got Back" uh, is top of the list on this Mashable.com article. There are a few of them in here. Um, "Billie Jean" by Michael Jackson. You know, "Billie Jean" from Michael Jackson. This was the one where he, his hair blew up. That's right. Well, blew up. It caught fire during the filming,
2: didn't it? Caught fire. Yeah, back in 1983. Right. What was interesting was it didn't. I don't recall Michael Jackson taking a tremendous amount of flack for selling out to Pepsi with this huge song, which was still a, a current song in 1983. Mm-hmm. And uh, meanwhile, people lost their minds when Revolution by the Beatles
1: appeared in a Nike ad two years later. Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys was used to sell soda pop. Um, they, they sold tacos um, using My Sharona by The Knack. Yeah, I could see that one-hit wonder kind of band just trying to get as much
2: mileage as they can out of uh, one song. Uh,
1: Mambo number no. five by Lou Bega was in there, um, selling what's looks like looks like cars. Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf. Don't remember that. What was he selling? GoPhone Light. What's what? Do you know what the the GoPhone I have no Light? No idea. Um, Bert Bacharach's What the world needs now. Madness. Our house. Uh, and in there as well, the same old song by the Four Tops. But the one that's missing. From this entire list, I can no longer listen to I Heard It Through the Grapevine.
2: Oh, because of the California Raisin. Exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely... Yeah, that has got to be the worst. Uh, good call.
1: At some points, the song's success in and to itself is eclipsed by the frequency at which you witness the commercial, and for the rest of my life... Motown is nothing more than a Raisin app. Yeah, and didn't the California Raisins actually release an album? Created in 1986 for the California Raisin Advisory Board. Oh, God. Uh,
2: The California Raisins sing the hit songs from 1987, Sweet, Delicious, and Marvelous from 1988, Meet the Raisins from
1: 1988, and Christmas with the California Raisins. In 1988. It was so successful that many of the merchandise items from the ad campaign are now part of a permanent collection at the Smithsonian. Wow. Now,
2: (laughs) here's a question. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Did the Marvin Gaye estate not make enough money from the California Raisins
1: that they could leave Will Ferrell and Robin Thicke alone? Oh, come on. I'm just saying. Just saying. Uh, I Heard It Through the Grapevine came out in 1968, and so they waited a fair number of years before they... Sold out and turned it into a 1986 commercial it, it took until the 80s Before people began
2: to license songs For for advertising It just wasn't done Because you had jingle producers And jingle writers That would take care of everything Up until that point There were a couple of situations Where a popular song became a commercial And in one or two cases Vice versa Do you remember I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing By the New Seekers Yes That was a Coke commercial
0: I'd like to build the world a home Honey babies and snow white turtle do. I'd like to teach the world to sing, sing with perfect harmony. perfect harmony. I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company.
1: That was a co-commercial first. It was a Coke commercial first, and then it evolved into a, a hit song. I was talking to a big shot ad executive, and I have to confess, I don't think I can tell you the name of the commercial but it was for a very very popular um not candy bar but but candy and it was so insanely successful and and the music the jingle was really what it was all about and unfortunately because the jingle was based upon a 1959 song they never actually secured the rights to the song beyond the initial run, and so to this day, they now have to renegotiate as they revive this ad campaign. They have to renegotiate with the estate of the now dead pop star, who was a one-hit wonder, and then they have to figure out what they're going to do next. The the default response is, well, just get Drake to re-record the song. But the the bigger brains within the ad industry are saying, no, 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 let, let's, let's not try to just, you know, half-ass it here. Let's do this right. And now they have to figure out how they're going to bring back what is probably the most popular candy song in the universe. First by paying for the rights to do it, and then figuring out a way to do it that doesn't make people roll their eyes who are over the age of 30. I know exactly the candy that you're talking about, and I do remember sitting in
2: music meetings at the radio station and we were positive that that song, that jingle, was actually a song. And we were trying to find it so we could add it to our playlist.
1: Okay, I will, I, I, I will tell you yes or no with one guess. Go. I don't remember.
2: <laughs> no. no, I, I do. I, I remember there was a girl dancing on the street and this insanely catchy with a 60 sort of feel song. Uh, No. Are we talking about this? No, it's a
1: whole different one. Oh, we're talking about a different one. We're talking about a whole different one. And like I said, because they're currently in negotiations, I can't actually discuss the the candy itself. No, no, don't
2: tell me. But again, this one that we were talking about in the music meetings wasn't an actual song. It was a jingle. And we actually got on the phone and said, you need to really expand this into a song. Do a new Seekers on it. Do, I, do I, I want to give the World a Coke thing
1: on Yeah, this, this was a bit of a different case. The, the, the original song by which the, the track was based on was so um, obscure and nobody really thought much about it because it was a one hit wonder that most people assume that the jingle is the original, where in fact they did base it on a song. Isn't that interesting? Meantime, you found uh, the unholy German Union of Vinyl and 8-Track. I'd never seen this thing before. It is called... The Tefiphon. The, the Nazis...
2: Well, not so much... Than... <laughs> yeah, just because we're talking about the Germans. Now, okay, the Germans invented magnetic recording tape in the 1930s. And they demonstrated it in Berlin at a radio conference, I think as early as 1933.
1: The rumor is, is that they developed it so that Hitler could use it as a means of playing back his speeches. Right. There
2: there, there was actually two uses. Number one, it was so Hitler could be heard on the radio at various... Points across the country simultaneously. So how, you know, where was the Fuhrer? You didn't know. You didn't know where to bomb them. The other thing that they did was they created these very long tapes of German dance bands playing on the radio overnight. And usually these bands would have to take a break after like 45 minutes or whatever it was. But these bands kept going on and on and on and on. And these radio stations were used as beacons for uh, the Luftwaffe. And the uh, Allies couldn't figure out you know how this band is is incredible. They just don't stop playing. They play all night. It turns out it was magnetic tape, and it was a a, a major in the U.S. Army that actually discovered a cache of some of these uh, these um, uh, recording Cassettes machines. Almost. Well, no, no, no. These were reel to reels, and and he under under the rules of war, the U.S. government actually um, invalidated all patents on both the German and. Japanese industries. So basically, this this guy came in, found all these rec- this recording gear, took it back to California, and turned it into the magnetic tape recording industry. This major. Now, but this is a thing that I'd never heard about the, the Tefafon. It uh, was an audio player. It kind of, it's kind of sort of an eight track player. Uh, because it works with a, a cartridge.
1: But unlike an eight track, which could play forever, this only played, had a four hour duration.
2: Right. Be- and you didn't use magnetic tape in this thing, it was some kind of vinyl tape.
1: Right. It had a a red licorice sort of color to it, and it would wrap around a capstan so that there was a sort of a looping mechanism to it, which gave you the ability to not have to rewind it, I guess. But it was uh, limited to four hours. It had a push-button track jump, kind of like the presets that you got on the analog AM radios. And uh, they were cartridges, so you wouldn't have to worry about breaking a vinyl record. Never caught on. It was only sold in Germany.
2: And it is so rare that somebody like me, who has actually done, uh, I mean, I created a museum exhibit about this sort of stuff, and I'd never heard of it.
0: Cut the cord and go to geeksandbeats.com anytime. You'll get the latest episode and links to the stories the boys are talking about. Geeksandbeats.com, also available on 8-track and cassette.
1: All right, uh, Mr. Big Shot, uh, music history man, what do the Harlem Shake... Gary Glitter and Star Wars have in common. <laughs> Whenever I think of Gary Glitter, I think of the wrong thing. Well, you think of the wrong thing now, definitely. Shake. Gary Glitter, Star Wars. Not a clue. They are all instrumentals that managed to make it in the Billboard Top Ten list. Oh, okay, I see that. All right, you win. Medium.com uh, has this interesting collection pointing out that in 1963 alone, there were 10 instrumentals that managed to make the top 10 list, uh, including uh, the surf guitar classic Pipeline and others, but instrumentals are, are very far and few between these days, uh, With uh, and there's one exception that makes it onto the list, even though technically it is not an instrumental, and it is by the champs, it's tequila. Tequila. <laughs>
2: Yeah, because he does say tequila several times throughout the song. Right. I did an ongoing History of New Music show on on instrumentals recently, and there are a lot uh, of instrumental hits both in pop and rock, but in the alternative world, there's really not that many at all. Uh, I, I, if you grew up listening to AM radio during the 1970s, you'll know that there were tons of them. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were movie themes. A lot of them were TV themes. Then you had something like uh, Frankenstein by uh, Edgar Winter Group or Hocus Pocus by Focus, and Hot Butter and Popcorn.
1: That was a big one. Miami Vice theme, to your point about uh, TV shows, hit number one on the charts by Jan Hammer in September of 1985. And... Um, even before that Harold faltermeyer's axel F made it up to number three in the same year how weird is this August of 1977 you turn on the radio and the John Williams and the London Symphony Orchestra Star Wars main title plays oh, star Wars but Star Wars. Give
2: me the Star Wars. Wars. It made it onto the top 10 list. Yep, I remember listening to a Casey Kasem replay of uh, American Top 40 and uh, you know some of the stuff that they would play, you know from the 70s, you know Nadia's theme. Uh, from around the time of the '76 Olympics with Nadia Comaneci. Uh that that was that was and it was weird that this song would come out of nowhere between all these other pop and disco songs from the 1970s. There's there's another one here that I one of the ones I really really liked was um, by a sort of a jazzy guy named Diodato, who did the theme from 2001, also Sprech There the uh which was a really cool, really really cool version of that. It was kind of dancy, kind of funky, kind of kind of cool. I'm um, trying to think of some other ones here. Uh, Billy
1: Preston and Out of Space. The theme from Hill Street Blues made it into the top 10 list in 1981. When I was a kid, in 1981, I wanted to learn how to play the theme. From hill street blues i got the sheet music i studied it i studied it i studied it and then one day the parents said you know what maybe we should uh, rent you a synthesizer maybe get you into that whole rock and roll thing this piano thing that's just not cool enough we went down to steve's music on queen street west in toronto and of course the only thing i tested all of the synthesizers out with was the theme to hill street blues it was the keyboard version of no stairway to heaven <laughs> Oh, Joy
2: by Apollo 100. That was the very first single, the very first seven-inch single I bought. And I bought it at the Sam the Record Man in Polo Park in Winnipeg. And I remember, this would be 1972, I remember spending 99 cents on this single. How much do you pay for a single today? You pay 99 cents. There you go. And that was 1972
1: Hey, um, at the point at which we're recording this during the course of this week, come Saturday, it's Record Store Day.
2: Yeah, it is. It's the third Saturday in April every year. This is, uh, I don't know how many, well, this started, uh, Record Store Day started in 2007. So we're 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, so this <laughs> is like,
1: Spoken like a real radio guy. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> I got into the business so there wouldn't be math. <laughs> right. So it has become this this big worldwide event. Uh, it was started by a bunch of people in Baltimore who were uh, running record stores who were really worried about the, the state of the industry at the time. And it's just spread from there. And actually, we have two record store days in in during the year. We have the official one that happens in April. But we also have the Black Friday edition of Record Store Day in November. And if you want to look at where the vinyl resurrection began... Point to Record Store Day. It began in 2007, the year after vinyl sales completely bottomed out. And since then, and since, you know, with Record Store Day and all the things that they promote with that throughout the year, vinyl has just gone up and up and up and up and up. So those five people in in Baltimore who started this whole thing uh, can also be credited with the vinyl resurrection.
1: Is it truly a resurrection here or is this just, you know, filthy hipsters who don't want to walk around with an iPod? I think it's it's what it is. It's the rebirth
2: of a format in a niche for a niche market. And for vinyl was essentially dead in 2006 and there was no hope of it ever coming back. But uh, it has, and it's going to stay with us to serve a very specific need within the music industry. Uh, another song on the list here is uh, A Fifth of Beethoven by Walter Murphy and the Big Apple Band, which is uh, a disco version of, uh, of Beethoven's Fifth. Walter Murphy is the guy that did the opening theme for Family Guy.
1: Really? Yes. <laughs> Family Guy theme to me was sort of a, uh, a, a, a an homage to All in the Family.
2: Yeah, it, it really was, and uh, so Walter Murphy would have re- remembered what it was like uh, for the for the opening theme of All in the Family, and that's what he based that on. He also did the Cleveland show and American Dad too. Right, because he and Seth MacFarlane must be buddies or something. Must be buddies. Have to be buddies. Yeah.
1: YouTube's old studio is being demolished. Yeah,
2: you know what? I was there in in uh, in Dublin in uh, February. I went and took some pictures of it. It's uh, along the uh, the wharf in the east end of, of Dublin, and uh, th- this is where it was their spiritual home. It's where they made a lot of records, but and it was the only place in Dublin where you could go and spray graffiti on the walls deliberately. Deliberately, and if you walk up and down this this block long line of uh, old warehouses. Uh, There was all these messages from people from all over the world, uh, you know, all YouTube fans that that made the pilgrimage to there. But now um, they've, they've, it really stood out because there was all, there's all kinds of new development around it. And then these old junky warehouses and uh, there was no point in saving them apparently because they weren't good for anything and the real estate was too valuable. So after years of threatening to tear them down, they finally fell Uh, In late March and early April of this year,
1: Windmill Lane Studios, I understand, has been around since the 1970s. And Van Morrison and the Rolling Stones, Sinead O'Connor—they—they are some of those who have participated in the history that had been the Windmill Lane Studios. First, but I guess U2's Joshua Tree is really that iconic album that came out of that studio. Yeah.
2: we have to be careful because there's two different windmill studios. There's the, the one that got torn down and then the relocated version across the wharf which is now home to a a school that teaches recording engineering and recording recording arts.
1: And as we had talked in a previous episode, the industry is so strapped for cash right now, considering anybody with Avid Pro Tools can sit down and and pound out an album, that uh, they're now using their facilities when they're not using it to host guys like Bono to actually teach people how to be Bono. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And pay good money to do it. Well, good money, I don't know. You've got this list of musicians in the minimum wage. Well, no, they pay good money to learn how to become musicians. <laughs> yes. That's, that's the only place where the real money's made these days. Well, yeah.
2: I mean, if you look at this chart, and I'll put a link to it, and you can see exactly how much you need to, how much your music has to be heard on various streaming services, ranging from uh, Apple's Beats and Google Play all the way up to YouTube, uh, man, you better hope that you have a hit if you want to make any any cash from this sort of thing.
1: According to Digital Music News, if you have a, a track on iTunes, Amazon, or Google Play, it's a single download at ninety nine cents. You would have to sell eleven thousand three hundred and sixty four tracks just to be making the minimum wage.
2: I actually use this chart when I speak to uh, bands at various. Boot camps and so on, and they're absolutely. You should see the. You've never seen a room for uh, full of more crestfallen people than when, you, <laughs> when you when you finally get to the YouTube one at the bottom, and they they, they express it as a, as a circle. And the bigger the circle, the more down, the more streams you have to have before you make minimum wage. Right. And the the circle for for YouTube is so big it can't fit on the screen.
1: To that point, on iTunes, you would have to uh, have eleven thousand three hundred sixty four downloads. To uh, get the equivalent minimum wage on YouTube with your music, you would have to have 720,000 plays, whereas yeah. with a self-distributed album or CD, you only have to, at $12 per pop, sell 105 of them for the artist revenue to be $12 an hour.
2: That's that's right, and the, the, the trick is getting, convincing people to part with that much money for your music. Well, Justin Bieber managed to pull it off. Well, he did, but uh, even Justin Bieber pales in comparison when it comes to sales to what we used to have in the 90s, 80s, and 70s.
1: I'm just desperate to get one more shot in at Justin Bieber after last week's show. (laughs)
0: Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com.